Disraeli Smith, interview editor with the Georgetown Public Policy Review. Recently, the Georgetown Institute of Politics and Public Service at the McCourt School of Public Policy held Clinton 25, a series of events celebrating Georgetown's own President Clinton's election as the 42nd President of the United States. Many former campaign and White House staffers, as well as President Clinton himself, came to Georgetown to celebrate this moment. Today, we're joined by Paul Begalia, senior strategist to the 1992 campaign and adjunct professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy. I hope you enjoy this very special edition of the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the GPPR podcast. I'm Disraeli Smith, our senior interview editor. And today we have a special edition. Uh, we're on campus for the Clinton 25 events. And instead of me telling you who's going to be on the other side of the podcast, I'm going to let him talk about himself. So please, by all means. Hi, Disraeli. It's Paul Begala. I am uh, probably most importantly an affiliated professor at the McCourt School and have been for many years. And uh, I'm really glad you're doing the podcast. I'm honored to be uh, a part of it. Many, many years ago, I was uh, on the Clinton campaign in 1992, and I think that's why they invited me back for this thing. <laughs> so tell us about that experience. Let's start there. You know, it's the best professional experience of my life. I've done a lot of campaigns and uh, all over the world. I worked in South America and Europe and in, in, in the Middle East and the Caribbean uh, and Africa. But there's just nothing like, well, there's nothing like a winning presidential election, but to be the on the team that traveled with then Governor Clinton was really a gift. It was just, it was exhausting. But we, I think we went to 48 states and this small band of brothers and sisters really became very, very close. And I, I sat, you know, at the knee of the master and learned politics from, I think, one of the greatest politicians uh, of all time, not just my lifetime. So what's the difference between you as a traveling strategist and maybe some of the members who may have been back at campaign headquarters or people who eventually worked in the White House? Right. You know, help us understand a little bit so of those dynamics. That's a great point. Um, th there's always tension between the roadshow, as we call it, right, and the headquarters. And the headquarters has all the grand strategists and the geniuses, and they have the, the you know, the, the research and the resources and, and the polling and the focus groups and the data analytics and all this and then there's just this little group that's, you know, on in an aluminum tube, you know, going 700 miles an hour through the air and having to actually execute on all that. And it's maybe I'm a sports fan. They're like coaches say, well, we had the right game plan, but the, 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 the team didn't execute. Well, shut up. You know, maybe we had a wrong game plan and the team was really doing a very good job. But so that tension is always it's built in because they're they're conceptualizing and we're executing. And there's. So Carville was my business partner and one of my very closest friends. So George Stephanopoulos is one of my very closest friends. And so that helped. We'd had a long history together before Bill Clinton ever hired us. And that was deliberate. When, when Hillary Clinton set up the war room, she wanted to make sure that there was uh, speed and, uh, and clarity of strategy. And then I'm, uh, so then they put me on the plane so that we could coordinate. And it, it worked all in all, but it is two very, very different experiences. I, having done both, there's nothing like being out there. There's just nothing. It depends if you, if I am kind of extroverted. I am kind of optimistic. I, I, so you get to go and see folks. You see things. You, you're so impressed with the, the breadth of the country, the diversity of the country, the strength of the country. Um, and back then with Bill Clinton, the food of the country. <laughs> Every advanced person learned a way to his heart is through his stomach. And so he and I ate our way across America. I, then I was 25 years ago. I was at least 25 pounds heavier, um, but it was worth every 
every empanada, every pierogi, every ethnic food in every part of the country. Neat. So obviously we're on campus, you know, these next couple of days for, you know, celebrating uh, Clinton and his 25th, you know, anniversary, if you will, of, of being elected. Tell us a little bit about his vision and, and how he actually, you know, tried to gather, you know, gather the nation together and inspire the nation. His vision, first, I said this in the panel that we had here at Georgetown, very much informed by his Georgetown education, which I didn't fully appreciate at the time until I went back and read until now. I've been at Georgetown for 17 years and, and have sent my children to Jesuit high school, Gonzaga, here in D.C. And his vision, he, he used to say this, was formed by a professor he had, Carol Quigley. Professor Quigley said you that America is great because of the future preference. You have to prefer tomorrow today and that every individual had a personal moral responsibility to try to make tomorrow better than today and that that's what began it and he he was and is um, motivated by, by by that Georgetown education the other thing is Mandy Grunwald our ad maker made this great ad where he was shaking hands with President Kennedy he was a Georgetown student no before he went to Georgia he was a, he was a high school student got invited to the White House as part of Boys Nation shook JFK's hand and he admired JFK but his real hero was Dr. King. And he was here on this campus when Dr. King was murdered. And it was shattering. He had memorized, probably still does, the I Have a Dream speech. He used to give it to his little brother when they were kids back in Arkansas. Uh, his brother Roger has heard that speech more than anybody in America because big brother Bill would practice it on him. And so those, 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 those twin, I think, uh, uh, worldviews, which are really all about uh, you know, what Ignatius called then in the gender-specific terms of his day, a man for others. We'd say today, a person for others. Be a person for others. Dr. King said, be an other-centered person. Don't be a self-centered person, be other-centered. And I think that was, that is at the heart of what Bill Clinton's all about, is that you have to be for others. You have to, and so that means being inclusive. That means widening the winner's circle so that the son of a widowed mom from Hope, Arkansas, can rise as far, or, or the grandson of a Kenyan goat herder can rise as far as his potential can take him. I mean, that's always the best of America, and that's kind of what, where his focus always was, and, and it remains. And, and I think that's America at its best. It's frankly also the Democratic Party at its best. I think that's an exciting point, the Democratic Party at its best. And I think the party is in an interesting time. You know, it, it, it's squabbling and uh, trying to rehash the past of 2016. Right. Uh, and when you think of 91, 92, the party had come off several presidential losses. You know, and now 2016, coming off a loss, the infrastructure isn't there. Right. How similar are the dynamics of the Democratic Party today versus 25 years ago? And what can we learn from that? We've, we've had more recent success today than we did then. Right. We had eight years of Barack Obama, a great president. We had eight years of Bill Clinton, a great president. We, we, I certainly believe that we should have had Al Gore, that I think the Supreme Court stole the election from Gore, and I'm still upset about it. So we've had a lot of success, actually. In fact, the Democratic Party has won the popular vote in the presidential election, I think six out of the last seven? Five out of the last six. Five out of the last six elections. So that's better. But we've, we've, we're our lowest ebb in state legislative seats. We only control 15 of the 15 governorships. We're out of the House. We're out of the Senate. We just lost the White House to someone that I think is a really stole the election. But yeah, I, I, but here's the only good thing about a forest fire is it it clears everything out so that the green shoots can rise. And I am seeing this at the grassroots level 
indivisible organizations or traditional democratic organizations, activists. We're seeing an entirely new generation inspired to rise up and get involved. And, and I think that's great. And my hope is that this will be a bottom-up Democratic Party. It's not enough to just say we need another savior. If only we could find another Obama. If only we could find another Clinton. Everything will be better. No, we need 10,000 state legislative candidates. We need 100,000 city council, county commission candidates. That's, the, that's what the Democratic Party is all about. With a little d, we're Democratic. Now, I think there's real signs of that, and I travel all the time, and you see it everywhere. And so in that sense, I'm very hopeful. And it's not going to come from the elites, and we're all squabbling with each other. You know, my Uncle George always says, God gave us family so we wouldn't have to fight with strangers. Right. So the elites, we're all fighting with each other. But meanwhile, while nobody's looking, out there in America, I mean, in rural Republican areas, you're seeing uh, uh, green shoots of progressive Democrats coming up. So in that sense, it's, it's a lot better. I, I think as we're talking, you know, the Virginia governor election is in two days. Uh, and I'm actually in a class right now in political campaigns, uh, taking a class from uh, Scott Muehiser and Michael Steele, talking wow. about political campaigns and, you know, what they should do. And we talk about Virginia a lot. Uh, and so what do you think the noise, you know, that has come out the last few days is going to impact you know, the turnout, and or should Democrats be worried, yes. you know, about Virginia? They should be worried. I'm very worried. I live in Virginia. Uh, I, I know Ralph North. I know Ed Gillespie. Um, I, he's a longtime lobbyist, and, you know, so you get to know the lobbyist. Um, I, I am worried that the squabbling could hurt because, I think very unfairly, people are saying the Democratic Party was rigged. It was not rigged. It's crazy. It couldn't rig it if it wanted to. But if you tell people, especially young people, that it's rigged, then they won't want to participate in the system. Who wants to play a rigged game? Now, the, the fact is, the party controls some of the nomination process, and that is caucuses. Those caucuses are controlled by the party. Bernie won almost all of them. So if the party was rigging it, they did a really bad job. Where the party did not control were primaries, which was the states run primaries. And Hillary won the majority of the primaries. So that's just empirical data that it won. Rigged. It, it, it couldn't have been rigged if they wanted to. You had 30 million people vote, and Hillary won by 4 million. And you can't say that, I think, and be fair to those young people who I'm seeing around the country you know, turning out and coming out. And I'm terribly worried that um, they're going to hear people who they respect say, well, the system is rigged, the party is rigged, so why go out there and, and fight? So I'm, I'm, I'm terribly worried. We'll, we'll see on Tuesday. I think one of the things that, that you, you think of looking back from the last 25 years, you know, campaign fundamentals have changed, you know, drastically. You guys changed how campaigns are run. Now, big money, soft money, you know, corporate money, super PAC money is changing. What I can spend and what I can't, you know, I'm spending money on Facebook, Twitter, Google changing how people receive media. You know, what do you think some of the differences are in campaigns 25 years versus now? And what would be some changes that you would suggest, you know, mm -hmm. as we look forward? The tactics and techniques are so different as to be almost unrecognizable. Okay? The, 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 as you said, big data, bigger money, um, the, the endless. There is no end to the news cycle. We thought it was aggressive then with one 24-hour cable news channel. Okay, now it's everything, everywhere, all the time. That's completely different. And 
Democrats, you know, they've leapfrogged each other, the two parties, as to who's been ahead and who's been behind. In 04, I think the Republicans were mastering the emerging media much better. Well, then by 08, Barack Obama came along in 2012 again, just bested them by far. I think in 2016, we had good data, and, 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 and so did the other side. I think the Russians targeted Facebook, Twitter, far more effectively than the Democrats or the Republicans did. And of course, they did it, our intelligence agencies say, to try to help benefit Mr. Trump. But that, th those things are all completely different. So we, we, we never had to worry about our email being hacked because we didn't have email. It was 25 years ago. Um, but here's what's the same. Ever since the beginning of democracy, a campaign is about an animating vision and a set of values. And how you share that with the voters matters most. That is to say, you have to have a message. You have to tell a story. It's more important with the proliferation of media that you have a tight, consistent, coherent message. And you know, all of and by the way, it helps if it'll fit on a baseball hat. And people all mocked Mr. Trump, make America great again, which people have been saying, by the way, that was in Bill Clinton's announcement speech. Go read the last sentence of Bill Clinton's 1992 announcement speech. He said, we will make America great again. Um, so that's nothing new, but the, the need, and I think Democrats need to learn from this again. We have to have a consistent message. It has to be about people's lives, not ours. It's got to be empowering and optimistic and inclusive. It's got to have a hero and a villain and a potential victim. And how I'm going to save that is we, the Democrats, are going to save that victim from that villain. And those elementals of storytelling, that goes back to prehistory. And that has not changed. And Democrats, you know, we, we can be, should be the better storytellers. Again, I keep going back to Clinton and Obama, but man, did they tell a story. It doesn't mean that they didn't have policies and programs. Those are two big brain policy wants. But all the programs and policies in the world will not penetrate people's heads if you don't tell it in a narrative form. And that was the gift of those two, I think, in my lifetime, two greatest uh, presidents. And I think Democrats need to go back and study what they did, even though the techniques and technology are very different. How much do you think Mr. Trump took the 92 playbook, ran in 2016, and said, let's go? I, mean, I don't know that much, but what he did understand is at base, there's only two messages available. Time for a change, stay the course. And Hillary, everybody in my party really felt like we were moving in the right direction. President Obama inherited the worst mess of any president since Roosevelt. Two wars that are going badly and a Great Depression. We're hemorrhaging jobs. We're losing 800,000 jobs a month. So he turned the thing around. Got us moving in the right direction. But Trump sees the mantle change. It's much more difficult. You know, we've only had a party win three in a row was, uh, in my lifetime, was Reagan to Bush. Reagan Bush yeah. So Hillary really had a tough road to hoe. It was time for change. People wanted change. And Trump was able to seize that mantle. Um, that, was, that was just baked in, though. Um, and so, yes, he ran as change. But I, I don't really think he was copying ours. I think he was much more, frankly, reminiscent of Nixon in 1968 um, because President Clinton and Hillary Clinton, and Senator then Obama, everything they talked about was unity. Hillary's slogan was stronger together. You know, Barack Obama ran said there's no red states and no blue states, it's just the United States. And Mr. Trump, like President Nixon, saw those divides in America and drove a wedge into them. He, he tried to turn us against each other, and I think that's shameful. Uh, but this time around, it was successful, and we can't let that happen again. Yeah, so as a policy student, 
you know, what things would you recommend to people like me and our little our listeners are policy students or they're policy wonks or they like policy? What would you recommend to us as we try to tackle, you know, the new dynamic and, and try to operate in 2017 and beyond? I think that more important than campaigns and, and different techniques, my field, what we really need is for people to think about the future of work. We need policy people to think about the coming collapse of work, of jobs. And we all love artificial intelligence, and we all love automation, and everybody's excited to get an Apple Watch or a Google self-driving car or a Tesla or something. And I'm all for it. That's great. You can't turn back progress anyway. But we're not doing a very good job of equipping people for new jobs as technology takes their old ones. You know, and, and it wasn't always that way. I had a great-grandfather was an ice man. And my uncle still has his leather apron, and he had big tongs. He'd take a giant chunk of ice, put it on his shoulder, walk it up four flights of stairs, and put it in your ice box. One of his customers was Thomas Edison, wow. who put every ice man in the world out of business because right. he mastered electricity. Well, that was okay because the rest of us found ways to get better skills and better education. I wound up going to college and law school, it, so it's a happy story. I'm not entirely sure people are thinking through what's the next job if you're a long-haul trucker, which is 4 million people in America make a living driving, not all long-haul. Long-hauls make the most money. That's a good middle-class job. You don't need a law school degree like me or public policy masters like you. They're all going to be unemployed soon, maybe five years, maybe ten. Four million good people with a strong work ethic. What are we going to do with them? So I think that's where, I'm serious, we need the policy community to start thinking through the future of work. And uh, it, it cannot simply be leisure or simply some people talking about a guaranteed income. Something for nothing, that's the, that's the death. I mean, the, the, I think the worst thing could happen to a person would be inherit a fortune. <laughs> really, I mean, I was not cursed <laughs> with inherited wealth, thank God. But I think we really need to think through, what do we do all day? Mario Cuomo famously said this once. He said, you know, a job is more than simply something to do to fill the time between birth and eternity. <laughs> you know, it's, it's what gives us dignity. And William Julius Wilson has written a lot about this and the dignity of work. And we, I think as Democrats, we're the party of work. We're the party of jobs. We're the party of working people. And we need our policy people to really think through the ramifications of this amazing change that we're going through. I don't think you can simply say, I need a politician to fix this because they're really busy right now, especially in my party, just trying to keep the wolf from the door in the form of our president. And so I, I think that's a great note to end on, but I want to end on a personal note. Yes, sir. The Astros. Yes! Won the World Series. Oh, my What gosh. was that feel? I, I happened to be in L.A. A guy happened to give me a ticket, so I happened to be in Dodger Stadium. Wow. I mean, it was one of the greatest moments of my life. It wow. was un... You know, there's not many times it happens as an adult that you feel that unrestrained joy. You know, like maybe on Christmas morning or something, or, 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 or like first time I got Diane Friday to kiss me. You know, it's, it's not often. And so I was able to experience that. I am so blessed. So, and I love that team. You know, that city had been hammered right. with Harvey, and now they are back on top of the world. Astros winning, Clinton 92. That, for me, the Astros felt much better because it didn't, <laughs> I didn't have anything really at stake. It, even when Clinton won, I was thinking about what's he going to say tonight, what's in the speech, I was sending right. messages back and forth to him, what about this? 
So I was even still working that night. I was really happy, but I was really focused on, on work. With the Astros, it was great. It was just pure. They had done all the work. I just got to pretend that I had anything to do with it because I was wearing obnoxious orange in Dodger Stadium. <laughs> At least they didn't run you out of the stadium. They were very kind. I will say this. L.A. fans are really classy. They were wonderful to me. And, and I hope that Houston fans would have been as nice to them. I went to one game in Houston, okay. and there was a Dodger fan that came over by us, and I followed his example. He came over, the first thing he did is buy a bunch of beer for everybody. So as soon as I got into Dodger Stadium, I sat down, I ordered beers for everybody I was sitting with, all the Dodger fans. And everybody was kind. But I learned that from a very classy Dodger fan who happened to be in Houston. Okay. They were great to me. Perfect. Well, I appreciate you talking Thank you, Disraeli. It's a pleasure to meet you. And, uh, you know, we appreciate you, and thank you for coming back to campus, and hopefully I'll take your class in the spring. I hope you do. We'll see you in class. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GPPR podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website at www.gppreview.com, our Twitter at GP Policy Review, or our Facebook, GPP Review. Thank you.